Hi, my name is Oriana Papanzogbi, and I am the CEO and co-founder of AOA DX. To me, femtech is investing in innovative solutions that solve problems that disproportionately affect women. Welcome to Femtech Focus with Dr. Brittany Barreto, exploring the past, present, and future of women's health and wellness. Welcome to the Femtech Focus podcast, where we have meaningful and provocative conversations with femtech experts. These academics, doctors, and innovators tell us about the past, present, and future of women's health and wellness. I'm your host, Dr. Brittany Barato, and in today's episode, I interview Oriana Papin-Zugby, the CEO and co-founder of AOA DX. Oriana is focused on revolutionizing early diagnosis of ovarian cancer. AOA's mission is to bring to market the first accurate early stage ovarian cancer diagnostic test that will improve clinical practice, help reduce patient mortality, and deliver cost savings to the payers. Their first product is is the first liquid biopsy test that accurately enables early diagnosis of ovarian cancer through the analysis of tumor marker gangliosides. Ovarian cancer is the fifth leading cause of cancer-related death in women ages 35 to 74, but due to nonspecific symptoms like cramping or heavy bleeding, there's a lack of screening tests, which also delays in the huge... But due to nonspecific symptoms and a lack of screening tests, there's a huge delay in detection. Only 20% of all cases are found early enough in stages one and two of the cancer journey in order for there to be a higher survival. To make matters worse, the survival rate in later stages of ovarian cancer is only 30% with a 94% reoccurrence rate. Early diagnosis of ovarian cancer is expected to cut this number of deaths in half and significantly reduce the cost of treatment and reoccurrence. Ovarian cancer is the second most expensive cancer to treat in women, second only to brain cancer. The average cost of care for women with ovarian cancer in the first year after surgery is approximately $100,000. This is obviously a huge issue. It's expensive. Women are dying. Stage one and two ovarian cancer looks like just a, you know, heavy flow and, and cramp. So I am so grateful someone like the AOA team is working on a true diagnostic. Enjoy the episode. Hey, Oriana, welcome to the show. Hi, Brittany. Thanks for having me. So great to have you here. Where are you calling in from? I am in Jersey City today. Yeah, I didn't know that. I am from Sussex County, New Jersey. Oh, wow. My husband wants to visit uh, that neighborhood for potential houses down the line. Okay, we should talk. I'll be calling you. Yeah. You call me up because, you know, it's really beautiful. Sussex County is like the reason they call it the Garden State. I mean, we got the highest mountains, Appalachia. I grew up on horse farms. Like people don't even know how country I actually am. Uh, but I was an hour from Manhattan, you know, at the same time. So yes, well, definitely we could talk about that for sure. (laughs) Well, let's get into, um, a little bit more about your background. Our listeners love to learn about our guests 
where are they from? What did you study? Did you have a career before this? And how did you end up here? Sure. Uh, where am I from? We could talk hours, but long story short, I was born in Venezuela. Uh, I grew up in Saudi Arabia. Um, and so my parents worked Oil there. And I went, gas. Yeah. No, yeah. My dad, well, my dad was in construction. My mom's a plastic surgeon. Okay. Um, and yeah, just, uh, I grew up there most of my life. And then I went to boarding school in Europe and then I moved to the U S for college and I went to Boston university. Um, and I studied economics and, I thought I was, well, before that I was pre-med and I thought I was going to be a doctor and my mom is a doctor and where I grew up, your career path was very sort of your traditional lines. You're a doctor, you're an architect, you're a lawyer, you're an engineer. Um, and <laughs> take your pick, honey, take yeah, your pick. Exactly. Take, take, <laughs> you're a woman, so not engineer, you know, so I'll go for the other one. Um, and then it's like, okay you know, entrepreneurship or sales or marketing or just, just didn't exist. And then I came to the US and I, I have always loved the sciences. I was good at it. And it was just like, okay, because you like sciences, you're going to be a doctor. Um, but I realized that there was so much more to a career in the sciences than just being a doctor. Um, and I really liked economics and I really liked connecting with people and talking to people. But this idea of a job in sales where I grew up was like kind of looked down on a little bit. And I, I didn't really grow up thinking that that's what I would want to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I did my first internship, my first like real like internship outside of just being like a college math grader, or, you know, like a, a company internship Yeah. Um, at a woman's health company. So I started woman health, like my senior years of college. And I kind of fell into woman's health coincidentally and never left. And I've been here for over 10 years now. What? Yep. And I just got an internship, um, which turned into a full-time job. Um, and I was in their international sales department and I was working on expanding the use of their, it was a woman's health test, um, in maternal fetal medicine and expanding the use of it in South America and in the Middle East, because I spoke those languages and like try to, you know, open the access of testing in, in other third world countries. And, um, I just, from there, I ended up having a career in women's health in the life sciences, that company ended up getting acquired by a German company. I moved to Germany and worked with them on um, expanding cervical cancer uh, screening in Africa, spent some time in East Africa on setting up some of the first mobile clinics to get access to testing for women. Um, And then from there, I did another startup in women's health back in Boston around preterm labor and like how are ways to assess the risk of preterm labor. Um, And then we sold that company in 2018. And now I'm, I'm back trying to do it again in ovarian cancer. Oh my God. All right. I have so many questions and we haven't even gotten to like your current company. Um, before I start digging into all these questions, the current company AOA, mm-hmm. um, you're the co-founder now. It's not like somebody else. It's mm-hmm. their company and you're joining it. This one you're leading, correct? Yeah. Yeah. Started uh, from day one. Oh my gosh. All right. Well, we're going to put a pin in AOA for a second because I... Didn't realize the extent of your background is so incredible. Um, could you speak on, um, you know, briefly or as much as you want about like um, women's health in South America, in Africa, in the Middle East? Like, what are what am I as a you know North Carolina based podcast host <laughs> missing about femtech from you know these other continents? What should I? What should we know about it? If we think that the U.S. is behind on investing in women's health, 
then as compared to some of these other areas of the world, we're light years ahead. Like it, I spent so much time in all countries of South America, Africa, and the Middle East, um, showing up to doctor's offices as an early sales rep. And then later as part of like negotiations with NGOs for widespread screening of, we need to get women access to testing. We need to get women access to testing. And I got answers from, you can't talk about that. That's taboo. Or we can't talk about screening for HPV because that implies um, a sexually transmitted disease and promiscuity. And that's not okay. And like that disease doesn't even exist here because there's no promiscuity in these countries. Oh my gosh. And so forget access to funding. Forget having the tools. You're working with just a society that is um, not even open to the concept of giving access to this testing. And I was, when I was working in Kenya and we were setting up cervical cancer screening and I worked for a company that had a product that was funded by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation that was a remote system to screen for HPV that worked on a van. Like this product was working and ready to go. And we just had to get access, like, and I say just, okay. We had to work with government bodies to get, Um, acceptance to be able to set up mobile clinics on vans and do this and it was so much pushback because why would we do this why do we need to set this up Um, eventually I went around it through actually lobbying with the first ladies um, of a lot of these African countries Um, they were led by this incredible woman who put together this band of first ladies of Africa um, to really focus on topics that affected women, women's maternal health, women's um, screening, just different areas for women's health. Um, and it was only because of lobbying with them and their support that I was able to do like a little bit of work in some of the most remote parts of Kenya to get them access to testing. But it's like, they're even further behind than I consider us over here behind. Yeah. Oriana, you are such a boss babe. Like, oh my God, you worked with all the first ladies of Africa. Like, <laughs> amazing and also like you know women that's what we do right we get together and we say enough is enough we put our foot down we we try to make change so that's incredible was there like you know you're talking about like there's this uh real resistance to even talking about it did you find that there was um sometimes a lack of words like they literally didn't have a word for some of these things that had to do with women's health yes 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 absolutely like there was there wasn't even a noun for certain things, or they would use the English version of that, you know, because it didn't yeah. exist in a local language. Yep. And was there like um, preconceived notions of this like hymen, right? That getting popped or anything? I'm just am curious about like some of the resistance to testing. I wonder if you know, even in America, the United States, we have this preconceived notion that a woman has a cherry that needs popping, and we have <laughs> debunked that. Uh, if you are listening and you're like, wait, what? Go check out Vaginas 101. We have a whole episode on it. There is no hymen that needs popping. Um, so no, I don't know. But I wonder, I mean, here in the United States, we still have that preconceived notion. Is that the same in other other countries? Absolutely. Absolutely. And you have, you know, in the United States, after you get to a certain age or once you've um, started to have sexual activity, then you go through your, and you're recommended to go to an annual OBGYN appointment. Um, Mm -hmm. And even if you're not sexually active after a certain age, you're recommended to go to an annual OBGYN, you know, appointment in, um, in other parts of the world, that's just not the case at all. It's, there's like no need to go to an OBGYN unless you're pregnant. 
And I would say, or there's something wrong. But then again, if there's something wrong, you don't even want to go because you don't want to di- be diagnosed with something being wrong, like yeah. in, a, in a sexually transmitted manner or in a female health manner. Or when I was first starting, and I remember that we were um, a we were quite a few women working at the company as salespeople because men just don't want to say vagina on the phone. Like I had to explain, you need to use a vaginal swab and collect the sample. Um, and no, and that was in the U.S. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Yeah. Crazy, crazy. Well, thank you for all that you've done. And uh, please let Femtech Focus know how we can, you know, continue to support all the vulvas all over the place, because that's what we want to do. We want to not just help affluent white vulvas. We want to help all the vulvas, all of them. Well, that is an incredible story. What a background. Um, Tell us about AOA. So um, after the sale of the last startup that I was a part of, that acquisition happened in 2018, two um, individuals that I've been working with who are today my co-founders, I've been working with them for the last nine years, Anna and Alex, and hint, that's where AOA, the name came from. So yeah, the three of us have just been working together for nine years, and we've been part of some incredible women's health companies, and we're so passionate about it that we said, okay, well, what's next? What's another area in women's health? that needs innovation? Where is there a problem that we need to help find a solution for? And we went on the hunt. None of us are scientists. The three of us have been in the women's health in the diagnostics field specifically, but none of us have ever developed a product. So we first started to look at, you know, published patents, tech transfer offices, universities that were doing really great research. And we looked at things like endometriosis, preeclampsia, ovarian cancer was one of the areas that we were looking into. And in 2019, somebody that we had been working with introduced us to Professor Saragovi, who's the inventor of this technology and today our chief scientific officer as well. And he found a very unique way to be able to diagnose ovarian cancer early. Hmm. And after review of really his technology and what the need was in ovarian cancer, we stopped work on everything else and just dove right in. We got rights to the license um, agreement with him. We filed for new IP. We did our first proof of concept study. And now we're at the stage where we're raising our first round um, to really invest and develop this early invention into what will become a blood test to be able to diagnose ovarian cancer early. Wow. Very interested in learning about the science behind it. And also listeners, if you are not a scientist, but you're like, I want to start a business. This is one of the ways you can go about that is look at what um, research is being done, what IP is being filed, tech transfer offices at universities, because a lot of scientists, they can research and create, but they're not business people. When I first became an entrepreneur, I was like, who's Mr. EBITDA? Like, who is that? I don't, why is he always involved? Um, (laughs) I have like no idea. 90% of medical innovation stays in academia. Yeah. It's it's, it's like, there there is such a need. This is my future business idea for, and and anybody come to me for this in the future, but it's like, we need to find a way to connect entrepreneurs and business people to these scientists so that this flow from academia to the actual marketplace to the women that need it to whoever you know needs it is so much smoother because 90 percent of medical innovation stays in research mm-hmm. well i do want to give a shout out so i did my phd at baylor college of medicine in the texas medical center in houston 
And it's actually the biggest medical center in the world. Many people do not know that. And we have amazing universities like BCM, um, but we also have Rice. And Rice University has a very good MBA program. And we're right across the street from each other. And there's this organization called Inventure, and they host like entrepreneurship, like webinars and seminars and meetups and whatever. So you get all these MBAs mixing in with all of these like PhDs and like magic happens. That's how magic exactly. happens. And like, yes. that was when, like, when I was in my PhD program, I was getting real worried about what career I was going to choose. Cause I was like, I got way too much personality to be in a lab my whole life. <laughs> Podcaster was not on the list of potential careers. That's where I finally found myself. But when I went to those meetups where I saw the business people and the scientists, and I was like, these are my, this is my tribe. Like these are my folks, right? Yep. So we need more of that. We need yep. more. Yep, absolutely. absolutely. Um, how prevalent is ovarian cancer? So here's the thing with ovarian cancer. A risk, a woman's risk of getting ovarian cancer in her lifetime is one in 78. Okay. It's not as high as some of your other diseases. The biggest challenge with ovarian cancer are twofold. The symptoms are not specific and there's no diagnostic test. So I'm, what I'm going to break down, and I don't mean this is a way to scare anybody, but honestly, to just to, to be attuned to your body. The symptoms of ovarian cancer are excessive bloating, changes in bowel movements, um, bleeding, um, abdominal pain. Honestly, women go through that once a month at least. <laughs> but it'll be, and again, a woman typically knows her body really well. It'll be more than your average bloating after pizza. It'll be not bleeding like when you're on your period. It'll be like not the kind of infrequent urination that you have a UTI. Like 90% of women that have had ovarian cancer knew that the symptoms were different. Like they knew that something was going on. But All I can say is if you feel those things, go to your doctor right away. Because those are the same symptoms as menstruation, are women often not believed? Exactly. And there's no test for it. But that's exactly it. They're not believed. And so, so many cases, they're like, oh, you're young. The chance that you'll have ovarian cancer is so low, like, not a big deal. But also, the doctors don't have anything to test them with. So it's like, even if they did believe them, there is no diagnostic test today for it. Wow. There's no, like, uh, mammogram for your ovaries. Nope, nope. There's no mammogram. You can't detect it on PET scan. If a, if a mass is less than 1.5 centimeters, you won't see it on an ultrasound. The only thing that they try to use today is called a CA125 test. That's approved in the US and in most countries for monitoring of ovarian cancer. It's not approved for diagnosing, but they don't have anything else, so they do use it. And so what they're trying to see is they'll test your CA125 over time and say, okay, it looks like your CA125 levels are continuously rising. Mm -hmm over about a three to a six month period, that's suspicious. So we have to refer you to an oncologist. And the only way that we can diagnose you is by doing an exploratory biopsy surgery. Where they cut open your abdomen, go it's in. Take into, your, into your ovaries, into your fallopian tube, where the rates of loss of, of ovaries are high from just the exploratory process. Like you don't even have ovarian cancer and you already have to go through a surgery that risks your ovaries. My God, there's, no test. there's just no test for it today. And why not? Why, why is there no test? Can you riddle me that? <laughs> there, so why is there no test is a great question. A few reasons. It's been very hard to identify what biomarkers, biomarkers are like specific targets in your body that identify for ovarian cancer. 
Um, only 7% of all non-dilutive and funding actually goes into women's health. Mm -hmm. So you have this issue of it's a woman's health issue, so probably not high priority, but also it's really hard. It's been really hard to find a target that's specific to ovarian cancer until we came along. <laughs> so what is the survival rate before we get into your tech? Cause I really want to do that. Yeah, yeah. But I just I had no idea about this ovarian cancer stuff, which is like, I've done over a hundred interviews, right? And at this point I'm still learning. I'm like, wait, what? So here we are, there's no diagnostic test. So how, like, what is the typical outcome for women? Like is ovarian cancer, one of those things that women die from all the time? Like not, you know, but if they get it, like, is it look like that's usually the end result? Like what is the, the so look like? 80% of women today are diagnosed already stage three and stage four. And the survival rate of disease is 28%. Wow. So most women mm -hmm. that are being diagnosed of ovarian cancer are fortunately passing away. Yeah. And a huge cause of that is it takes so long to actually get a diagnosis and ovarian cancer develops and spreads quickly. Wow. So these women are coming in, even if they are believed, they have to have serial monitor testing over time to see if those levels are going up. If they are going up, they have to go to a surgery. Then they have to get that scheduled surgery. There are only 750 gynecology oncologists in the United States that perform that surgery. And that's in the US, Brittany. Your average woman travels 200 miles to receive ovarian cancer care. Wow. And so then they finally get a diagnosis. And for most of them, it's too late. Yeah. Holy crap. Um, are there certain ethnicities of women that get ovarian cancer more? We have seen that the African-American population in the United States have a higher rates of, have a higher incidence rates of ovarian cancer. Um, yeah, I would say that's probably the most prevalent one right now. And is there like, um, you know, when I think of breast cancer, I know a lot of people think of like the BRCA1 mutation. Is there some kind of genetic trait with ovarian cancer or is it mostly like environmental toxins that might lead to it? Uh, a little bit of both. So you do have BRCA1 and BRCA2 positive uh, women are at high risk for ovarian cancer. That encompasses about 10% of all the cases. Um, the rest are, it could be environmental, you know, your endocrine disruptors, but it could also be, um, you know, any other way that cancer forms, right? Yeah. Which we, we're still figuring all that out today. Yeah. And, you know, listeners, cancer, we, we call it cancer, but every type of cancer is a whole different disease. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Skin cancer versus breast cancer versus bone and brain and ovarian, like they are all so freaking different. So when we say cure for cancer, it's like, that's just actually just totally not even plausible as somebody yeah. who, who studied in genetics, stability and mutation, like that's just cancer is very complicated. And the fact that we don't know a lot about ovarian is like really, really upsetting because we can't just take all of our knowledge from, you know, uh, pancreatic cancer and apply it exactly. to ovarian, right. It's all different. So let's exactly. get into AOA. So you're creating like a diagnostics test. Yep. We're creating a, a blood-based diagnostic test. Okay. Um, and so for all these women that are coming in, I think one thing to distinguish is the symptomatic population and the screening. So yes. you have a lot of companies out there that are screening. So after you get to a certain age, then you get screened for prostate cancer or you get your annual mammogram, but you don't have any symptoms of the disease. Mm -hmm. We're not quite there yet with our test or with anything in ovarian cancer. We're starting off first with all those women that are coming to their doctor complaining of those symptoms. Mm -hmm. so they know that something is wrong they're going and they're showing up at their doctor and the doctor has nothing to test them with today. 
Yeah. We're developing a blood test to draw their blood in the standard way and to identify specific markers that we have found um, in ovarian cancer and be able to tell the doctor accurately with high sensitivity and specificity that yes, this woman does have ovarian cancer or no, this woman does not have ovarian cancer without the wait and see approach, without the exploratory surgery. Wow. Would you be able to tell if it's like early stage versus late stage? Not in the test that we are designing right now. Um, So it is allowing us to diagnose ovarian cancer, not to stage it quite yet. Got it. Yeah. I believe me, your test is likely freaking amazing. (laughs) Do not (laughs) take my question as like, oh, it doesn't do that. Like, no, 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 (laughs) no, 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 it's fine. (laughs) (laughs) For making this test. Um, So like, what is the, like, um, you know, uh, timeline for this being out in the market, people can actually use it. So we're looking at, don't hold me to this because things change all the time. We are still, I mean, we're, we're still in development of the product. Then we have to do our FDA clinical trial, and then we have to get through our FDA approval process, but we're looking at a commercial launch in about four to five years from now. So like around 2025. Yep, definitely. Yeah. And um, so you're going down the FDA route rather than yeah. like the licensed test diagnostic yeah. one. I think that's yeah. the other route too. Yeah, the LDT route. Yeah. Why is there a difference? Only because we do have some founders that are, you know, early stage in, in these kind of areas. So what's the difference between going FDA versus the uh, licensed test diagnostic? Yep. So your LDT route um, allows you to develop a centralized lab process. And that centralized lab process means all your samples have to go to your lab and you have a process and you have done your own study that vets that this technology works. Mm. FDA does not allow that to happen in any and all diseases. It can be done in certain areas of, of, in certain disease types. Um, Ovarian cancer is not one of them. And it's usually cancers are not one of them because the risk of doing your own study that isn't audited by the FDA could have very lifelong ramifications on yeah. an individual's life. And yeah. so there are certain areas where it's like the risk profile is low if you had, you know, um, a false diagnosis or what may be, and it's okay to send all your samples to one place. And so then you'll develop an LDT. Some mm-hmm. people start the LDT approach with the goal to turn into FDA down the line just so that they can mm-hmm. start to get revenue and launch their product and get some market awareness. Um, unfortunately, ovarian cancer, or fortunately, you know, from, from yeah, a yes. yeah. um, doesn't fall into that category because yeah. the, the risk of a diagnostic test is quite high. You know, if you misdiagnose mm-hmm. a woman um, that has lifelong ramifications. Absolutely. You know, I always like to describe to people like, they're like, wait, what do you mean? Like there's certain tests that don't need FDA. And I'm like, I always tell them about Everly well, right? Yeah. Like you can get your food sensitivity test at home. And based off of what you said, it's like, Hey, listen, if the test somehow had a fluke in it and it said you're allergic to onions, whatever, <laughs> like maybe your life, your life may not yeah. dramatically change. You may miss yeah. out on onion based pierogies or something. I don't know, yeah. but yeah. Exactly. <laughs> otherwise you, you'll be fine. Um, has told you you didn't have ovarian cancer, but you did. Uh, it's called the lawsuit and consequences. <laughs> um, you know, being a pioneer in this, do you, are you worried about, or has it already happened that there's like other barriers 
to getting to market because you're the first. So for example, like, is there a billing code for this? Like, has there ever been a study to even like standardize your test with? Like, what are some of the, there's so many things in femtech, it blows my mind that it's like, well, no one's actually ever done this. So like, there's no billing code or whatever. And so um, tell me about that, your experience. Uh, 100%. I mean, you have written ACOG, the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology, has written guidelines for how to diagnose ovarian cancer. And they're based on what's available today. So we have to go up and convince them through literature that our test needs to be included in those guidelines because now there's something for ovarian cancer. We need to do a bunch of clinical studies all across the world with populations that are diverse and have different access to care to, to show, again, that this test will actually work. We are there. We may have the opportunity to leverage on an existing billing code, but that's rare. The last two companies that I worked on, we had to develop the billing code. You're absolutely right. But like even, even utilizing an existing billing code, we have to figure out how we're going to fit into that and how, yeah. it's, how we're going to make that work for us. Um, and so there are, it's the FDA is one of the barriers to entry. Introducing a novel technology in, in, in femtech is like you're... <laughs> You're climbing a very steep mountain most of the time. Yep. No, absolutely. I mean, <laughs> uh, just the other day I was interviewing a woman. She's a cardiologist and she was talking about how, yeah, I'm just, you know, just finished my cardiology training. Turns out there's one line in the whole book that said, uh, if a woman is pregnant, she should exercise by increasing her heart rate. But like, there's never been a study on like how pregnant women should exercise for their heart health without hurting the baby. Like there's literally nobody's ever studied, like, should women even be running when they're pregnant? Like, should they do yoga? Should they not do yoga? Like, no, it's just, says like increase their heart rate. And it's like, okay, that's not science. Um, <laughs> that's not like a full yeah, recommendation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, absolutely. Uh, I mean, if anything, this, the clinical trials that we saw on the COVID vaccine, right? Like, let's not even include pregnant women for now. Let's just yeah. like see at a later stage what that could look like. Yeah. Ask your physician if you are pregnant or breastfeeding. I did an Insta store. I said, doctors, you know something we don't? And like all the doctors were like, nope, we don't like, it's just going to be like based on our opinion, you know, like yeah. CDC didn't give us facts as anything special like yeah. based on how I feel that day, what I'm going to tell my pregnant patients to do, you know, this is crazy. It's so crazy. Yeah. So, um, you know, what are, you know, as you're approaching gynecologists and oncologists, like, are they super excited for this? For the most part, yes. We have interviewed a lot of obstetricians, gynecologists, oncologists across the board. And you have some that are like, I'm skeptical. Nobody has ever been able to do this before. It makes you think that you can. And then you have others that are like, we are so, and this is the majority. There is such a desperate need for something um, as long as it's even just a little bit better, like, like, let us, like, let us know, because we'd be interested in working with you. Yeah. Um, and the vast majority are like what you have, and we've showed them data. And, you know, we're right now we're putting together a clinical advisory board are like, wow, this is really, really in- interesting. And you, like the data is looking really strong. How can we work with you? How can we find ways to really like make this access to testing? Yeah, totally. Totally. Wow. Well, this has been incredible. I am really excited for your past, present, and future in women's health. You've already done a lot. I'm, you know, however, Femtech Focus can support you and AOA. Like that is just, this sounds really important, obviously. Thanks so much, Brittany.
Yeah. Uh, we have two questions that our listeners love. The first one is, uh, we have a lot of aspiring femtech founders. So what's an area in women's health and wellness that still needs innovating? I can think of two. Um, one area that we were looking into that we were challenged with finding something was endometriosis. You know, being able to diagnose endometriosis and then to effectively manage a woman's life that does have endometriosis, whether that be through fertility or just the physical pain of endometriosis. Mm-hmm. There are such poor solutions available today. Um, so tackling that problem is one. Um, and then, you know, as someone that went through IVF, I think the entire fertility journey for women needs profound innovation. Some of it is so archaic and some of it, you know, I've heard of a few companies trying to disrupt it as well. Um, but I've heard of a lot of companies that are putting the focus on, on women, which is really great. And just like driving you to do preconception or driving you to do all these things. But I think a lot of that also has to translate into practice because I'm somebody that just does a lot of research and I've been in women's health and I'm more informed when I show up to my doctor's office and I'm like, I've done this, this, and this, they're like, yeah, but we don't do that here. And so it's like translating and, and, and really working alongside women and the doctors to put everybody on the same page. Yeah, yeah, totally. You know, I think that, that it comes up a lot and I do see some companies trying to like do that for me as an investor and like an expert in this industry. I always wonder how does like supporting a woman turns into a business model, you know, yeah. Uh, yeah. That, and that sucks, right? Like we should be able to yeah. make money and educate and community should be uh, the thing that we all pay for has value. But that yeah. is one thing that I always think about um, how is, you know, having a chat bot that supports you or gives you blogs that are correct for what you're going through. How does that translate into a, a revenue model? Um, yeah. But, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, those are the challenges we get in an emerging industry. You know, Absolutely. how do we make money from this? Absolutely. No one's done it. Ten years ago, femtech was not a word. Yeah. Like, if we were lucky, people talked about women's health. Yeah, but like that was the extent of it. Yeah. Well, since you're an OG, you know, original gangster <laughs> in women's health. Um, real quick, what do you think about the word femtech? I'm every which direction. I'm on Clubhouse. I'm on like Facebook, whatever. People are like, I don't like the word femtech. It's too limiting. It's too this, it's too that. And I'm like, yeah, but we're all here because the title of this group is called Femtech. We found each other. We're here. You know, I don't think we should like throw the baby out with bathwater about the word femtech. So what do you think about the word femtech? I don't have a qualm with the word femtech. Here's where I find here's where, and this is, this is my personal experience with it, where sometimes I am puzzled is when I'm approaching investors that invest in femtech, there's quite a few that don't invest in regulated femtech, which is like FDA diagnostics approaches. And a lot of, for a lot of people, femtech means apps, wellness, et cetera, et cetera. And so we're Sometimes I'm challenged is how do I know who is who? Because I don't, I also don't want to waste somebody's time if they only invest in apps and I am a diagnostic based product. Um, But I definitely think it's been helpful to just as a community bring people together because I am likewise interested in people that are doing apps and wellness and connecting with those founders and, you know, sometimes speaking with those investors. Um, So I, I don't, I think it sounds better than women's health. Yes. Yeah. Because I would say, you know, well, if you Googled women's health, you might come up with Jenny Craig down the street. If you Google Femtech, you're talking about the innovation with yeah. accelerators and funds. So it kind of gets you better yeah. to like where you're supposed to, the neighborhood you're actually looking in. Um, Absolutely. So. I think it gets you in the right neighborhood, 100%. So we'll we'll see. We trademarked Femtech Focus. I hope it sticks around for a little while longer. Uh, <laughs> kind of have a brand about it. Um, <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. 
Um, what do you think the femtech industry as a whole needs the most right now in order to be successful? Investment, a hundred percent investment. I, I think there are passionate people. I think there are problems to solve. I think there's clearly innovation. Some of the times waiting to be, um, you know, uh, invested in or found. And I think people are excited and willing for it. I think the biggest hurdle that we face is twofold investing in femtech and then investing in, in the founders, because typically those founders are women because they understand the problem and women get 2% of all funding and femtech gets, or women's health and femtech gets 7% of all funding. So compounded, you know, you're just at such a disadvantage across anything that's either, you know, that affects both men and women, or that's just even only men. So I think the biggest thing that this industry needs is allied investors. 100%. You know, let me ask you this. So um, there are a lot of female founder funds established and upcoming. What I find, correct me if you find different, but what I find is that a lot of these female founder funds do not do med device therapeutics. They are doing like leisure travel CPG, which is fantastic. And like, that's awesome. But I had a few months ago, someone say, Hey, well, like, do you, is there a female founder fund that funds med devices? And I was like, damn, you know what? And I like, I was the one that asked that question at clubhouse. That was me a few months ago. That was me. Full circle, full circle here. So you have been in my mind because for months now I've been like, damn, this is so true though. Oh, they don't, they don't really they fund. Don't, they don't. No. I, I will say something and this is going to sound probably a little controversial, but I think we're in a safe space. Yeah, we're space. safe space, safe space. Um, you have, you, people want to invest in femtech for, I think, two reasons, like two broad reasons. Number one, they're passionate about it number two, it's a buzz. It's a buzzword, right? Mm-hmm. Investing in women and investing in, 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 in female founders. It's like, I get to cross and I've, I've had an investor say this to me word for word. You check off the diversity checklist for us. So you know what, <laughs> if that got me into the meeting, okay. I hope you yeah. continue to invest for other reasons, but to go to your point, I think for some funds, and I'm not categorizing them all in this way, it's cool to invest in, in female founders and it's cool to invest in FemTech, but it's really hard to invest in diagnostics and it's really hard to invest in therapeutics and it is risky, but that's what we need. If we're going to solve problems like endometriosis and ovarian cancer and infertility, your apps are going to help, but they're not going to solve the medical problems. Yeah. I mean, if we're putting billions into Bitcoin and blockchain and rockets that can land on ships, we need a goddamn ovarian test. You need humans. You need humans that come from those ovaries, okay, to pilot those rockets and spend that Bitcoin money and do things with them, you know, like it's these ovaries that are responsible for future generations to come. I feel like we should have like, evangelical tax or something if they believe in ovaries <laughs> that much like they should fund this <laughs> talk about controversy i'll put a pin in that but <laughs> no but i uh so we're actually really excited we're i'm i'm partnering up with uh my business partner jess carr and we're starting coyote ventures and you know her she's background's a scientist i'm a scientist and we were debating on our investment thesis 
uh, do we want to include med device and therapeutics? And I said, we have to do med device and diagnostics, you know, med device and diagnostic therapeutics yeah. drugs are like, I mean, that's like billions, you know, our little seed fund, you know, whatever. Yeah, yeah. But that's even med device and diagnostics is, is going to be, it's going to be huge. It's going to be, it's like, it's so desperately needed. And we can have another conversation offline about how you should invest in AOA. But, uh... <laughs> you check all of our boxes. I'm just kidding. Obviously. <laughs> <laughs> the boxes you check is that you're really fun to talk to. That's like my requirement. I'm like, do I enjoy interviewing you? Yes. You're up for investment. Um, yeah. <laughs> been so much fun you're amazing uh really really cool moment there we had bringing it all back you're the person who asked me that question i haven't stopped thinking about it um so yeah thank you so much and uh you know keep it up aoa man nice work thanks so much Brittany. thanks so much for having me it's been such a pleasure talking to you today thank you for listening to my interview with oriana papin zugby the CEO and co-founder of AOA DX. I cannot believe that one in 78 women will be diagnosed with ovarian cancer in their lifetime. By 2035, new ovarian cancer cases will increase by 55% and deaths will increase by 67%. To learn more about AOA diagnostics, visit aoadx.com. Alrighty, Fem fans, please join the Femtech Focus virtual community and subscribe to our newsletter at femtechfocus.org. In our virtual community, you can become a Fem Pro member for only $10 a month and get access to our library of recorded Femtech content and free tickets to our Femtech Fundamentals events. These are bi-weekly workshops that help founders build, launch, and succeed. Femtech Focus also has Monday night listening parties throughout the month of June. We're doing investors, so we're inviting investors to come and talk to you. We also have a monthly Femtech book club on the last Wednesday of every month and weekly office hours on Clubhouse. There is a lot going on, so definitely become a member at femtechfocus.org and stay up to date. While there, please consider making a recurring donation to Femtech Focus, which is a 501c3 nonprofit and relies on your donations to operate. Okay, Fem fans, until next time, keep innovating because improving women's health and wellness improves everyone's health and wellness.